Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm feeling very satisfied. Just wanted to throw that out there at the start because, Ben Baldanza, we're going to talk a lot about airline satisfaction today. There are a lot of unsatisfied travelers and unsatisfied politicians, and I'm eager to really dive into the deep end of the satisfaction pool and really consider what all this means. Ben, are you ready for a satisfying discussion? I sure am, Scott, and I think our listeners are going to find our conversation with Karen Walker, the editor-in-chief of Air Transport World, to be quite satisfying as well. Satisfaction is an interesting concept in air travel, Scott. You know, you'd think just getting safely from one place to the other with your luggage would be satisfaction enough. But that's not always the case. The price you paid, both the fares and the fees, certainly puts a thumb on the satisfaction scale. People are attuned to things like legroom, how full the plane is, and certainly delays and cancellations, and even if the other passengers were grumpy. Long lines, limited seating in the gate area, whether there is space for your carry-on, it all has an impact on how travelers feel about airlines. It really does. All that and more, Ben. But let's talk about some data on satisfaction. Jonathan Sutter gave us an early look at the J.D. Power survey results last week. But once the full report came out, I was really surprised at the level of dissatisfaction. So I thought it was worth talking about it in some more detail. As you'll recall, the report, which is based on a survey of about 7,800 consumers, showed satisfaction with airlines was down significantly for the second year in a row. And J.D. Power warned of possible brand damage if the current pattern of price hikes and staffing shortages and reduced routes continues. What I found most fascinating, Ben, was in the economy section, the coach cabin where most of us travel. Jonathan told us that Southwest was on top in coach satisfaction, along with Delta and JetBlue. But the full results showed that those three were way ahead of the rest of the pack. In fact, those three were the only carriers with above average airline satisfaction scores. The next eight airlines were all below average. That happens because scores for Southwest, Delta, and JetBlue were so much higher than the rest. On the bottom were Frontier and Spirit. Probably no surprise there. Third lowest in satisfaction score was American. American also scored lowest in first class satisfaction, but did much better in premium economy. Very interesting. In economy, though, American was so low that it scored worse than Allegiant. Seriously, 
American was lower than WestJet among 11 North American carriers, as well as lower than Air Canada, United, and Alaska. That's some serious dissatisfaction. I'm sure reliability has a huge part in that dissatisfaction. American has had problems with its operations for the past few years, though it seems to be running better now. I also think there's an issue of just expectations here. For decades, Southwest has created an expectation that you don't get that much when you fly them. If you go back to the 80s, there were ads with Herb Keller with a bag over his head and pictures of peanuts and things like that. And they've created this brand really around, we get you there for a fair price. So when they're on time or when they're not that delayed and when they're nice to you, which they often are, they tend to score really, really well. American, on the other hand, has always had these very lofty, we know why you fly, we love to fly and it shows, and all these kinds of marketing things that suggest they know what they're doing. So consumers expect that they know what they're doing. So when things go wrong, it's crazy. I remember not that long ago landing in Miami on an American flight and holding after landing for 45 minutes while we waited for a gate. And I'm thinking, doesn't American have lots of gates in Miami? Like if we were in Kansas City, I might have expected that. But even things like that drive people crazy. Yeah, it really does. I, that actually happened to me in Dallas the other day, Ben, when we landed and we're sitting there waiting for a gate. And the captain came on and said, we see the six empty gates there. We called dispatch to tell them there are six empty gates there. Why can't we have one? And then the, then the captain said, they haven't answered us. Well, there goes your satisfaction score right there. Um, I, I think it's a great point about expectations. Um, but I also think that this dissatisfaction with airlines is real, certainly real in Washington. Um, and I think that plays into the other big news of the week with eight of the 11 airlines um, in the J.D. Power thing scoring below average in coach service. No wonder that the president and the transportation secretary announced they would draft rules to force airlines to compensate passengers for cancellation and delays that are the fault of the airline. Not just refunds for canceled flights, but provide some kind of bonus payment for the inconvenience. The idea is similar to the European passenger rights rules that require compensation for airline problems. I think it's unlikely to happen in the U.S., the DOT will have to write rules and then face all kinds of intense lobbying by the airline industry, which has shown in the past that it can be quite effective at getting its way in Washington and killing any kind of passenger rights effort. If the idea does make it into regulation, I'm sure airlines will challenge it in court. Why single out airlines and not the cable repair man or the doctor who keeps you waiting for hours? 
I'm all for passenger rights and penalizing airlines for bad behavior as a way to force the industry to invest in staff and tools to provide better service to customers. The tarmac delay rule worked brilliantly. It ended an abusive industry practice and made travel better. But this rule strikes me as a giant distraction, Ben. The FAA is responsible for just as much delay and inefficiency as airlines are. Is the government going to compensate passengers for government-caused cancellation and delays? I would much rather see the president and the transportation secretary investing time and money and political capital in fixing the infrastructure and things under their control, like air traffic controller staffing and equipment modernization. I'd much rather see them address the pilot shortage, either by reviewing the 1,500-hour rule, which was passed by Congress on a motion and not safety data, or by providing significant financial assistance to student pilots. This airline bashing, as we enter a presidential election cycle, it should be said, strikes me as pure politics. It's unlikely to actually happen, but it generates headlines. And it just plays off that dissatisfaction with airlines that the J.D. Power survey showed. It's popular to bash airlines, but it doesn't do anything toward giving us a better transportation system. So what do you think of all this, Ben? You're right on, Scott. Real solutions to make this industry better for customers are not part of just bashing airlines and say, pay someone if you have to delay a flight. It gets to the issues you talked about in air traffic control, the 1,500-hour rule, overall infrastructure, and even more. You know, this is an industry, Scott, that has two big problems when it comes to customer service. One, it's an industry that economists call an intermediate good. What I mean by that is almost no one actually wants to be on an airplane. (laughs) They want to be where they're going. They want to get to their business, get to their vacation, get home, wherever it is. And in everything we buy that's like that, we don't have as much tolerance for it because every dollar we spend on that is a dollar we'd rather be spending on something else. The other thing is that it's an industry that's dependent on three things, people, machines, and Mother Nature. And all three of those things fail and fail fairly regularly. So when you have that kind of structure of an industry with the fact that customers don't want to be there in the first place, it's real easy to want to make fun of the industry. And it's very popular for politicians to pick on the industry because they know most people are going to say, right on, keep going. Yeah, that's so true, Ben. And I would add a fourth to to your list of three, um, and that's government, because you can't move an airplane without permission from the government. The government is very much a partner in this industry. And I think Congress and the administration and all administrations 
need to recognize that, that they're part of the airline business as well, and they need to get their own house in order. Uh, there was an interesting thing I saw, I think it was in the New York Times, uh, that equated what was proposed with um, compensation for overbooking. And it's an interesting thought. Uh, there are penalties paid to passengers when airlines overbook, um, and that's to discourage the practice of overbooking. Um, and I think it probably works, right? It, uh, there, is a, there is a cost to the airlines for overbooking, uh, so they're sort of forced to um, limit the practice, and that's better for passengers, at least for the individual customer. But overbooking is something that's totally in airline control. An airline can decide we're going to overbook this flight or we're not going to overbook this flight or by how much we're going to overbook. Operational problems are far murkier, a lot less clear. A pilot calls in sick. Is it the airline's fault that that flight got canceled because of a sick pilot because there were not enough reserve pilots? Uh, or is it just because the flu's going around? A flight gets canceled because of a maintenance problem. Was it avoidable because of a lack of preventive maintenance? Or did something just break? Or let's take the Southwest meltdown at Christmas. Did Southwest expand beyond its system capabilities? Yeah, it sure seems that way. So was that in the airline's control? I think in that case, that's what's driving a lot of this uh, talk. Um, that was. But there are plenty of operational examples where it's really confusing. Um, and one other point, Ben, it's been pointed out that Boeing compensates airlines for major delivery delays. That's in the contract, right? So maybe we should look at this as government negotiating the contract of carriage on the passenger's behalf, since passengers can't really do it alone. I'm not sure that's equivalent, but it is an interesting thought. Um, curious what you think. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the contract of carriage. I always tell my students that that's probably the most common contract in the world that almost no one reads, right? Yeah. And that it's this huge contract that defines what the airline will do for you when things go wrong. And people check the box that say, I agree with the terms and conditions, not necessarily recognizing they're agreeing with this 50 or 70 page document. And so they lose your bag and you had something important in your bag and they say, I'm sorry, they, you agreed to this contract and it says, here's what I'll pay you. If I lose your bag, that's all you get. And it's that while it's a legal protection for the airline adds to sort of the murkiness of our airlines fare when things go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, very much. I will point out, I just sold my house with half as many words as buying an airline ticket. <laughs> and speaking of dissatisfaction, there was an interesting story on airfares this past week. The U.S. Consumer Price Index, the main inflation measure, tracks airfares. For as long as I've been covering the industry, it's notoriously inconsistent because it it's a sampling of fares on certain routes at a given moment. Sometimes the survey hits low fares and sales, 
Sometimes the survey happens to hit flights already well sold. I've long thought the government needed a more accurate measure of airfares since it is a component of a very important number. The survey, accurate or not, found that airfare inflation peaked last fall and has been falling since, including a good drop in March. That's good news for the economy, though I think a lot of people buying tickets now and tickets for summer travel might be wondering why they can't find that decline. Airlines are talking about record demand, not pricing weakness. The Wall Street Journal did a longer view of airfare inflation in the CPI and found that the big post-pandemic run-up in airfares, the price increases that got everyone complaining about sky-high fares and too much consolidation, actually just wiped out a decade of airfare pricing declines. Travelers are back to paying roughly what they did a decade ago. In fact, in March, if the numbers are to be believed, Prices paid by consumers for air travel were 6% lower than a decade ago, based on the CPI. Regardless of quibbles with the numbers, I think the big picture is still clear. So much has changed in air travel over the past 10 or 20 years. Low-cost carriers have much larger market reach, pressuring fares lower. Business fares and leisure fares are basically the same with restrictions like Saturday night stays long gone. Change fees have largely been eliminated. The big boys need low fares to stimulate travel and fill lots and lots of seats. Adjust for inflation, and we really are paying less than we were a decade or more ago. And yet so much has changed recently Pilot and aircraft shortages have driven prices higher. Demand has been off the charts. The charts are getting rewritten because post-pandemic travel has really changed. There are a lot of reasons why airfares will go higher from here. The perception of higher fares, if not the reality, has certainly led to a lot of dissatisfaction and political whipping that the industry has experienced. What do you think, Ben? Are fares high or low? And will we be paying higher fares in the future? Scott, I don't really see how we cannot be paying higher fares in the future. When you see what's happening with costs in the industry, if you think of the major things that airlines spend money on, people, fuel, airplanes, and airports, and you ask yourself, what's the trend on costs of each of those things? They're all increasing in costs. Labor's becoming more expensive. Airplanes are becoming more expensive. Airports are becoming more expensive. And we know that fuel is becoming more expensive. And in a push for more sustainable fuel, that's certainly going to come at a cost. So I don't see how it's possible for fares not to rise. That said, the industry has another economic reality, which is that while average costs are very high, marginal costs are still really low. What I mean by that is for a flight leaving in a few hours that has 10 empty seats, I'd rather someone fill that seat at almost any price than be empty 
because they might pay me to check a bag. They might buy a drink on board. And yet having the seat full versus empty makes almost no difference to my costs in operating that flight. So what the reality of that is, Scott, is that prices in this industry are often driven by how much capacity there is. And this summer, because there's not as much capacity because of people shortages and the fact that Airbus and Boeing can't deliver airplanes as quickly, that's what's really going to keep fares high. The next time we're going to see fares drop is when demand isn't as high, but the airlines have a lot of seats. Now, fares may not be certain, but I'm certain that Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. This week's show is brought to you by Duhop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Duop is a travel technology provider, enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their destination. Maybe they're part of the solution to more customer satisfaction, Scott. Mm-hmm. Visit Duop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we want to thank Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Next week, Scott will have the recording of our onstage interview with Ted Christie, the CEO of Spirit Airlines. I'm looking forward to being with Ted and our many listeners in Miami Beach. I'm looking forward to being with you and Ted and hearing some stories about uh, the Ben Baldanza days at Spirit as well. And right now, we are thrilled to have Karen Walker with us. Karen is Air Transport World Editor-in-Chief and Aviation Week Network Group Air Transport Editor-in-Chief. Karen has been writing about aerospace and air transport industries for more than 35 years and is a recognized authority and commentator on the industry. She joined ATW in 2011 and serves on the board of the International Aviation Club of Washington, where she's based. She was IAC's president in 2017-2018. Karen, welcome. So let's start off. Tell us about your aviation background. 
Hi, Scott. Great to be talking to you. And thank you so much for the invitation to join you today. I appreciate it very much. So I went to journalist school, of course, in East Anglia in, in the UK and started off on local newspapers, which is, the, which is where most journalists do start. But I always wanted to do something industry-wise. That was sort of what I wanted to, what was interesting to me. And my father had been in the US Air Force. I was actually born on uh, an American Air Force base. It just happened to be one in the, uh, in the UK. And um, so that was sort of interesting. There were a lot of um, Air Force bases around where I grew up and, and where my first two newspapers were. And so I saw that Flight International, um, which was a, and still is, a big uh, uh, aviation publication in the UK, was looking for a defence reporter. And I didn't think I could stand any chance whatsoever. (laughs) But um, I just thought, oh, well, it'll be a good experience, you know, uh, put in in an application. And I got the job. So I ended up uh, going to fly first in the early 80s as a um, a junior defence reporter. Um, I then went to Jane's Defence Weekly, which is another British publication. Um, So that's more broadly defence, but I was still very much doing aviation. Um, I was doing aviation and technology there. And then I went back to flight. I was originally doing... by that time, I'd moved back to the United States and I did some uh, space coverage. I used to go down to Port Canaveral quite a bit covering the shuttle program and I did a bit of general aviation coverage. So really going all over the all over aviation at that point. And then Flight had a magazine called Airline Business and that it, it was how it sounds, totally covering just the airline side of the industry, commercial air transport. And they gave me the position to be their America's editor. And so that's when I moved up to Washington, D.C. And that's where I really first got into uh, commercial aviation. And it's funny because a lot of people who had known me doing military and space, said they said, oh, that's going to be so boring. You know, <laughs> eh? airplanes. Uh, and I was a little bit, I thought, mm, you know, well, let's see. And I just loved it. It was just... Um, uh, just as far as I was concerned, way more interesting. Um, you guys both know, you and Ben both know, uh, the air transport industry never fails to be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's always something going on. Yeah. And um, I loved it. And I loved, you know, I was in DC, I was covering all the hearings, congressional hearings. So I was on Capitol Hill a lot. Um, it was a fascinating time because there was this whole thing about, um, you know, uh, discussions on sort of uh, open skies, liberalisation, alliances, who was trying to, you know, the the infamous AABA, no way, said Virgin, things going on. Um, and I really got into that side of it. I really loved that regulatory political side. So that was fascinating. I have also, uh, I then did uh, actually return to um, the military. I was editor for Armed Forces Journal, through it, I went there in 2003, so that was just as the Iraq War was beginning, and that just seemed to me like, as a journalist, uh, you know, a very interesting opportunity. And then in 2011, the publisher of Air Transport World uh, invited me to be editor of ATW, and much as my experience at um, Armed Forces Journal had been a 
extraordinary. I couldn't wait to get back into air transport. And, um, and so that was it. Then I came to ATW. Well, let's talk about ATW for a bit, Karen. This magazine has been a standard in covering global airlines for decades. Tell us what it's really like being the editor of a magazine that covers such a dynamic industry. You yourself talked about how the industry never fails to give content. Uh, thank you, Ben. It's... um. Uh, you know, I I feel very lucky. It's a privilege, literally, to have a a job like this. You know, first and foremost, you know, I'm a I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. You know, and I'm here. So this is quite interesting. For example, it's very very. This is turning things around for me. I <laughs> I usually interview people, not the other way around. So this uh, um, it's quite nerve wracking, isn't it, to be the <laughs> to be the interviewee? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll have more sympathy in future for, for the people I interview. So it's, uh, you know, so first and foremost, I'm a journalist and I love, I love being able to use those, you know, those skills, my, my writing skills, um, the, the, I just love putting, thinking through and uh, the concept of each magazine. It's never worn off for me, the, you know, the, the, what's, you know, the content and then how we're going to present it, um, all of that. It's all the, 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 Scott, you'll understand this, you know, it's all those things of like looking for a pull quote that you're going to, you know, highlight something really n- nice. What's the mm-hmm. headline? So I like all of that side. And then, of course, there's the industry aspect of it. And that's where I am truly lucky because, you know, I, I look at all the, what I think are very boring subject matters that other journalists have to cover. And I've just got the best one of all, which is this incredible industry. And you both know it's an industry that the people who are actually in it, you know, there are pe- pe- people who are actually of the industry, whether that's in the airlines or the airports or the manufacturers, the whole thing. It's a bug. I, I hear that so many times that people say you you can't give it up. They just love it. Even when it's going wrong, even when people are bad-mouthing the industry, the whole thing, people tend to just love being part of it. And people, you know, kids just get fascinated by aircraft uh, taking off and landing. And for some of us, that never wears off. And so that's always been the case with me. I've always been fascinated by this industry. I, I still love watching a plane take off. I still love landing at a new airport and seeing loads and loads of different um, uh, liveries, you know, uh, that are not the ones that I usually see. So so there is a, there's the element of just pure enjoying it. And then there's the, you know, again, I go back to this word of privilege of, you know, the access that I get to to meet and talk to, you know, senior executives around the world. And that's another part of this. You know, part of my job is it's traveling a lot, of course. And that's I mean, that's just wonderful when you can travel around the world for work. You're you're so right about all of that, and you know, with the with the news side of the business, um, everything that happens in the world somehow seems to have an airline industry angle or an airline industry impact, and and we certainly saw that with the pandemic it affected the industry um, in just monumental ways. Uh, how effectively do you think the industry has responded to that challenge, Scott? I think we're still 
working that out if to to be truth i mean you know i think everybody would say that in 23 we really have seen a turning point the biggest turning point of course was when you know not just a few but, but almost all um, restrictions were lifted and borders reopened that was that was huge you know there was very little that the airlines could do obviously to attract people back to flying for as long as people felt that um, well either that they couldn't go because the borders were closed or that they felt that the restrictions were too too much to cope with and you know and I I managed to do quite a bit of travel um, including some international travel through through the pandemic and you know I know I can personally tell you that oh the headache of dealing with the forms and the tests sometimes you needed multiple tests and you needed to work out the exact timing and the cost of that so you know what we really saw was that um, once those went away the world started to really start to feel more normal in terms of uh, aviation travel um, and then you've got but then you've got the, the you know airlines are around the world saddled with a lot of debt because of you know all the money the billions of dollars that were lost uh, during that time and I think it's been surprising for a lot of people. We sort of expected to see a lot more airlines go out of business. And while there have been some, the number's relatively very small. Um, In part, of course, that's where, you know, government support uh, came in. Um, um, But even there, what you've seen is that um, those airlines that had government loans have paid them off. I think the airlines have uh, have done a heroic job. I think the frontline workers at the airlines and airports and the whole system have done a, a heroic job. And that's before you even start talking about, you know, the delivery, the cargo side and the delivery of um, all the medical equipment, of, of medical staff, of, of course, the vaccines. Fantastic. I- let me ask you, too, about that. It's interesting in Washington now, and I think for a lot of consumers, um, there's, a, there's a backlash brewing, right? It seems as though um, it's politically expedient to beat up on airlines because that, that recovery was heroic. But I think the, the, the long-term question may be, was it too much too fast? Were airlines too eager. And there's a huge financial incentive, right, to get those very expensive airplanes flying again and get those seats filled again. And some airlines did it faster than they had the staff to do. Now, they also argued they they didn't know what staff they were going to have and who was going to come back. But do you think that there's going to be a regulatory backlash to the problems the industry has had with the restart? Yeah, um, it's interesting, isn't it, how short memories are. I'll be a bit controversial here. I'll just say, and how hypocritical, because, you know, politicians, lawmakers tend to be tend to be among the frequent flyers of this world um, and they tend to like you know they want their direct flights from their airport and yet they're the ones that somehow think that they know how to run a bit uh, an airline business best which is um, which is nonsense and they don't apply that sort of wisdom to the hotel industry or you know theme parks or whatever you know that, that they know how to do service better number one you can't blame the airlines for wanting to to come back as fast as they could. They they had lost billions of dollars, and they 
of course want to want to start to get back to where they're you know um, at least got rid of that debt um, but they want to get back to being profitable and that's a profitable airline, I have to say, is is what everybody wants. A profitable airline can deliver the best service because it can invest in in new products and new aircraft and the best staff. And of course, it, it you know safety is expensive. It's it's mandatory, but it's expensive. You want an airline to be able to uh, be profitable. So you can't blame them for wanting to come back fast. Um, and in any case. They could have come back as fast as you like, but it wouldn't have mattered if the public didn't want to travel. The public wanted to come back fast. They were absolutely fed up with not being able to get to the places, see their family. And they, they showed that and they came back very fast. And the, as you know, a lot of uh, some things had changed in terms of sort of public habits, in terms of travel. People have been booking their flights much closer to when they want to fly. That makes it very difficult for the airlines to really (laughs) know what that demand level is. So I think it's been, I think the criticism has been unfair and not logical. And you've not seen criticism label. You know, when I go to restaurants, some really good restaurants uh, these days, here in the DC area, um, the food could be good. The service is often terrible, and it's not necessarily that restaurant's fault. They, of course, also they lost a lot of money. They lost all their staff, and they're trying to uh, come back. And they're having a big problem getting staff. It's very, very competitive. Um, but I don't see a big outcry about that. Uh, you know, aviation, of course, is very, very public. You know, when it goes wrong, it's all over the headlines. You've got, you know, these dramatic pictures of people sitting on floors and queuing. So, but I I think what I, here in DC or, 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 or here in the United States, I really, really hope that this, uh, this talk about, um, you know, what I would call re-regulation needs some common sense applied here and they need to get out of, out of that idea of of um, dictating things like um, when does an airline charge for baggage and you know the, the airlines are still very vulnerable financially again you'll see these all these headlines of you know made millions of profit the margins in this industry are tiny and it's because it's a very very expensive um, service to provide so you know those millions actually don't go very far and they're certainly not going very far right now while while the industry is still stabilizing well karen let's move on to another somewhat controversial topic let's talk about sustainability the industry has put out a very aggressive net zero by 2050 policy And I say very aggressive because it's going to take a lot for the industry to get there, an industry that's so dependent today on fossil fuels. And you have investors in the industry who are really pushing the industry to move in this direction, saying we won't invest in businesses that aren't moving this way and we'll invest in more businesses that are. My question for you is, do you think all of this is ahead of the customers? What I mean by that 
is, is there a point in the future where most customers will choose to pay more for their ticket to be on an airline they deem is more sustainable or will they still go for the lowest fare? That's a very interesting point that you raise, uh, Ben. I mean, again, as all three of us know, um, sustainability isn't an option for the air transport industry um, around the world. It, it, um, they do have to meet this uh, 2050 goal. They do have to continue to really mitigate the, the carbon and other emissions as well. Um, so it is very, very important. I have, in all the years that I have covered this industry, I have never seen anything as huge and... Uh, the whole industry agrees on this. Um, it has to be done. The industry, you know, it is actually, as you again know, it is a very clean industry, but it's it's got to do a lot more. Um, and they know it. Everybody in this industry knows it. The interesting question you just said was, what's the passenger viewpoint on this? And um, it, it, we've just actually run an article about a recent study, industry study that's been done. And I think it's interesting, but I think it actually highlights what we sort of all know is that uh, from the passenger perspective, you know, of course, they like to hear that all this is being done to, so that their flight is uh, is of minimum impact to the earth, to the world. But when it comes to, well, what, you know, are you going to actually pay for this? There's quite a disparity there in terms of how people answer that. <laughs> On the one hand, oh, yes, yeah, no, this is good. On the other hand, start when you start to ask people about, you know, what are you prepared to pay for this, the the answers start to change, shift, and you know, people can of course emit for, you know, a lot of airlines allow you to pay towards the carbon offsets. It varies around the world, but there's not a huge uptake of that, and that's voluntary. And I think if you start to actually really make it clear that passengers will have to pay more for their ticket to offset the enormous cost of what the sustainability effort is. Ben, you know, you absolutely know from your days at Spirit that the ticket price is the most important thing. People want the lowest fare. So I think this is an interesting one. I think it still needs to, it needs to have a good, honest, transparent conversation. Karen, Air Transport World gives awards each year that are closely watched in the industry. Can you um, explain the process to us, the process that you use to determine the winners? Uh, yeah, thanks, Scott. The Okay, so we're just about to uh, have our next industry awards gala, and that'll be in Istanbul in uh, June, 2nd of June. So in, in the lead up to that, it's really a year round process. It's, it really truly is. Almost immediately after we finish uh, the awards gala, we will um, start again on that whole process. So it starts with where we post nomination forms on our site and around. So people, individuals, companies, airlines, organizations, everybody and anybody can can submit a nomination and the form and we have different categories for the different awards we typically present between eight and uh, ten awards a year 
And so we start with that, and then we're getting in those nominations. Our team of editors all around the world can also put in their nominations, and then they must also provide information that supports the criteria for each of those awards. So that's that's the first step. And then we, once those nominations have closed, we get together as a team, and um, there's a sort of like some several steps we go through first of all you know where we can really just pick out what we would call some finalists from each of those and then we really get into okay having some meetings among ourselves to really go through each of those categories and we tend to sort of have different meetings where we'll just do you know two or three categories and then of course we end up with where we're we're picking the one the one big one the airline of the year so it's a you know it's a very democratic process we go through all of that there might be you know questions that are raised and I will go back to whoever nominated to address those questions and we try to get down to where there's really just you know two um, in any category um, and at that point would take a and take a vote Um, so that's the process of it and then of course then we start letting people the winners know and then we start the build-up to doing the awards presentations itself the there's one category that is a little bit different that than that it's the joseph s murphy service to industry award joe murphy was the publisher and founder and the first editor of um, atw and um, that is something that we don't always give but it does come up it always goes to a person and we feel that that's somebody who has exhibited incredible um, service to the industry and so that is a different process that's where it, it, it's typically myself or one of the other lead editors in the team will say, well, what about so-and-so, you know, and and then we'll have that discussion and, you know, if that if it merits that, then we go to that person, obviously, and say, you know, would they accept the award? Uh, so we do have that. That's a slightly different process. And I'm thrilled that this year, mm-hmm. Ben Baldanza is, in fact, our uh, recipient of that of that award, and and highly deserved. Let me just add, highly deserved, and uh, just can't, can't think of many people uh, who have given more to this industry than Ben. Um, Absolutely. I, th- I just wanted to congratulate you. I thought you did a fantastic job with that. Absolutely. Well, thank you both. But Karen, let's talk about the awards people really care most about, which are the airline and airport of the year. Who are they this year? Yeah, thank you, Ben. So um, our airport of the year is Istanbul. And while that is pure coincidence that we happen to be in Istanbul for the, uh, just to just to make clear, we, what we do is we hold the awards adjacent close to the IATA AGM, which of course, as you know, is where all the airline senior leadership meets, you know, the uh, member airlines of IATA, their senior memberships, senior executives meet. That's a thing that I've been covering for many, many years and um, is a very um, important industry event. So the location of where we go depends on where the AGM is. And so we had a number of great uh, nominations uh, for the airport. Um, Istanbul just really caught our uh, attention. I think this is a classic of an airport 
you know, this was something we were looking at very closely this year, of course, how some of these big airports, these hub airports have managed the, you know, the rush of demand post as the as the borders reopened. And um, Istanbul has managed that very, very well indeed. Um, it's a stunning airport. Uh, lots of innovation, lots of, you know, sustainability elements to, to that. So, so that was, uh, that's Istanbul. And then, you know, as I say, Singapore Airlines is the airline of the year. So that's the top award. I would have to say, actually, Ben, I think clearly airline of the year is the big one. To do that, you've got to be right across the board. Excellent. You know, financials, operations, innovation, customer service, sustainability, the whole the whole thing. So it's a very high bar. But I would say that because of our previous conversation over the few, last few years, the other huge important award is Eco Airline of the Year. We're getting a lot of entries for that, of course, and uh, American Airlines is our recipient of the Eco Airline this year. A very competitive field, and obviously the airlines want to be able to sort of, you know, say, hey, we have this award. We are um, the Eco Airline. But Singapore Airlines, I mean, they're an exceptional airline always. It's just been an incredible story to watch them that, you know, through the pandemic, they literally just lost their entire business. <laughs> you know, Singapore uh, is a global hub, but it has no domestic routes. And, you know, on all those borders were closed. And the innovation they brought into into how they handled that was was spectacular. And we talked earlier about readiness to come back. I think that really did set Singapore Airlines apart. They're, they were thinking ahead so methodically they absolutely their ceo wonderful man mr go absolutely had 200% faith that the that it, things would come back and they if anything come back bigger and better than ever so they were working so hard and methodically to be really really ready they're very lucky they have this fantastic support um, from their hub airport, Changi, another amazing airport, and from their government and from their people, from the the people who live in Singapore, are very proud of that airline. Um, but, you know, their, their transition to come back when borders opened was really quite remarkable. And, it, and it, that wasn't easily done. That was preparation. Very interesting. Karen, after covering the industry for 35 years, you must have some stories or events that have meant the most to you. Can you share one or two? Oh, gosh. Um, well, let's just start on the on the, the darker side first. Um, obviously, you know, working through the pandemic, it was very unusual for me, for all of us, really, to not be flying. But it was incredible how everybody in the industry responded to our webinars. We just started doing lots of webinars at all hours. And it was actually quite an amazing a thing to be able to just do to be talking to all these executives, albeit virtually. So that was an interesting exercise. I hope we never have to return to that, but it was interesting. Um, on 9-11, I was then at Air Transport Intelligence, which was another, it was an online newswire service, part of the flight group. And I was in our office in Alexandria when all of that awful um, things were happening. And uh, so we were 
trying to cover this while being like everybody else shocked at our team in that in that office in uh, northern virginia and the plane of course the american airlines plane crashed into the pentagon which was not that far from where we were based and you know one minute i'm covering what's happening and trying to be dispassionate and and the next minute, the street was just at the window outside was just full of black uh, smoke and people were, you know, running away to to collect the kids and all the rest of it. And it, it, I mean, that it, it, we all know that was a, um, a just just a stunningly awful day. And again, the industry came back and it was very interesting to report on 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 that process on the on the on the brighter side um again i i use that word privilege earlier you get you get some nice uh, nice things happen in this in this job um it's always lovely when you take participate in a first one of the most fantastic uh, opportunities that i had was to be on the first commercial flight of the boeing 787 dreamliner that was with ana another wonderful airline from tokyo to hong kong um, that program had been delayed and delayed and uh, ana um, had been extremely patient and my goodness when that plane took off so they they sold tickets of course and so there was a lot of just you know passengers uh on there i mean they knew they were buying a special ticket on there but there was also some you know a lot of media and executives etc uh their ceo and when that plane took off it didn't need wings or engines at that point the the joy the sheer joy you know and japanese people tend to be quite reserved you know oh my gosh they, it was that was wonderful and I, you know, looked out at the, you know, those huge windows that the 7-8 has and that incredible wing. I, to watch that wing, it's so long and curved. And to watch it, it sort of just lifts right up as you take off. That was amazing. I also uh, took part on a, um, a flight on the A350, the Airbus A350, the competitor to the 7-8, on their test plane out of uh, Toulouse. So there was just all the wires and engineers and everything in, in the aircraft. And that was uh, amazing that is another absolutely beautiful plane so when you do those firsts they're they're lovely um i'll just hark back a little bit to you know doing the military stuff i i flew with the canadian aerobatics team the snowbirds flew with them across western canada and did a whole aerobatics display over vancouver in their jets which was um which was stunning I spent some time with the RAF, the Royal Air Force Rescue um, Helicopter Team up in Scotland. The idea being to just, you know, to write a feature about, um, you know, their operations and and so and they did some practice things on me. You know, they told me to run and hide and they'd try and find me and then they airlifted me on a um, on a winch and all those sorts of things. Uh, but while I was there, there was an actual real call at night, a climber on one of the mountains and they were, it was all covered in snow, had fallen and uh, fallen on his ice axe and punctured a lung. And so they bundled me in. I was all in the flying suit and the whole thing and they bundled me in the Wessex helicopter and I went on an actual rescue operation and uh, they brought that guy in and took him to a hospital he he recovered so that was quite quite stunning <laughs> for someone who's not actually in the in aviation <laughs> uh, and not been trained for any of this this is uh, again um, quite amazing great stories Karen 
We're so appreciative that you've come on the show. Before you leave, tell us what you think this industry is going to look like in 10 more years. You know, 10 years isn't that far ahead. I mean, assuming the, you know, assuming we don't have the the sorts of things that you really just can't foresee. And that's the other interesting thing about this industry. It, it's so vulnerable to things that are completely outside of its um, control, you know, like a pandemic, like a terrorist attack. Um, but let's just assume um, a good 10 years for, for mankind uh, going forward. And um, I think if, I think we're still going to actually see sort of more of the same. We've got a lot of new aircraft out there um, and a lot of new aircraft being delivered. So you're going to, you know, that they, they bring a lot of um, additional sort of um, benefits, you know, they're, they're quieter and um, bigger bins and those sorts of things. Um, you know, you're going to see a return to, you know, people wanting to start new direct routes. So people will, that'll take a little while because of what's happened. Um, but I think you'll see that. So you'll see people being able to have um, more convenient routes. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think, and I actually hope, um, I think, you know, if you take away the factor of this pandemic recovery, I, I, I think and I hope that you're actually going to see the industry really look very much like we're we're used to. Well, Karen, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. We've really enjoyed it. And I'm sure our listeners have too. Um, it's great to catch up with you and uh, look forward to hearing all about the uh, great award ceremony in Turkey later this summer and many more great stories in air transport world. Scott, Ben, thank you both very much. This has been uh, just such a pleasure. I, I thank you so much for the invitation. And Ben, a sincere congratulations um, on that award. Like I say, very, very well deserved. And I am really looking forward to presenting that to you, that trophy to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Karen. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Karen Walker. Ben, we got a couple of questions from listeners that will ask Ted Christie on stage at Aviation Festival Americas, but otherwise the mailbag was empty this week. Send those questions and comments in. I wanted to make one comment myself, more as a tip of the hat. If you followed the news over the past week, immigration and the surge of undocumented people at the southern U.S. border was front and center, and front and center to it all was Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security. Mr. Mayorkas is well known in the airline industry. He was Deputy Homeland Security Secretary when CBP and TSA were rolling out new technology at a rapid pace, expanding global entry, for example, and making it a government program that works and is deeply loved by travelers. He did much more. Long CBP lines were a huge problem. I was writing lots of stories about three, four, five, ten-hour waits just to enter the country in Miami and JFK and other major airports. And CBP solved that with kiosks and technology that allowed regular travelers to speed up their processing. You rarely hear about long lines and certainly 
not the hour-long wait that were plaguing international airports. Politics aside, Mayorkas is smart, well-spoken, and a devoted public servant who has done a lot for travelers. He's on the hot seat now, and I tip my hat to him. If I had to pick someone I wanted to handle a huge, important problem, Alejandro Mayorkas would be at the top of the list. Well, Scott, the southern border, like airlines, is an easy thing to pick on. And like airlines, there's a lot of misinformation about what's really happening and what the real solutions would be. So I agree with you. I think he's right for this job. But there's a tough narrative that airlines have to recognize is going to be pushed at them and that he has to recognize is going to be pushed at him. And the only solution is finding the core solutions that are going to make things better. Well said, Ben. That's very well said. Well, that's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Thanks again to Karen Walker for a great interview. Have a great week, everyone, and hope to see everyone in Miami. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with Ted Christie and more on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.